Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Matt, and welcome to Pod Wraiths, a Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast. If this is your first time joining us, we're two friends watching Star Trek Deep Space Nine and sharing both our deep and irreverent thoughts on our favorite Star Trek series. This week we're talking about Season 1, Episode 19, Duet, teleplay by Peter Allen Fields and directed by James L. Conway. This episode aired on June 13, 1993. This week on Deep Space Nine, Kira investigates a Cardassian who may or may not be a war criminal, confronting the banality of evil. And joining us this week is Anya. Welcome back, Anya. Hey, happy to be back. Um, since we are just starting out, Anya, do you want to tell us about your initial thoughts on this episode? Um, this is one of my favorite episodes of Deep Space Nine, period. I think it's one of the core Kira episodes and probably one of the most highly regarded in general. Um, I think it's just great in that it takes that sort of like core Star Trek, like morality investigation almost and just executes it beautifully. So. I'm very excited. It's definitely like a morality play, right? And like emphasis on the play because like this episode feels very much like a play to me because again, it's it's a bottle episode and a bottle episode in the context of filmmaking and like, I mean, TV making, Star Trek specifically, is it's an episode that takes place all in existing sets. So you definitely see them as ways to, to save money right because there aren't they're not going to any planets there aren't you know they aren't really like effects heavy just everything you can shoot it on your existing sets and ultimately i'd say about 66 to 75 percent of this episode is kira and maritza just monologuing to each other and like that could sound like boring and i can see how it couldn't work for like everyone depending on like which flavor of star trek you prefer but um this is one of my for better or worse um favorite episodes i think of star trek period and it's been really interesting you know working our way through season one of deep space nine and we're we're almost there folks one more episode and then we're we'll be on to season two which is a little wild to think about it definitely is wild but through the ups and downs and through the like culesses or (laughs) if wishes were horses and everything else it's like we're at duet and this is this is a banger this is an all-time episode of deep space nine of star trek and it's a first season episode and it's just I'm going to be thinking about this episode. Like, listeners were recording this on a Monday evening. I will be thinking about this probably at least till Wednesday or Thursday. Um, if not always, I'm always thinking about duet. Um, <laughs> but yeah, what about you, Elise? So, I also really love this episode. Um, this is actually one of the only season one episodes that I remembered from my first watch. And it's likely that before I watched it, I had heard in various online communities and also Matt probably was like 
duet is a good episode before I watched it. So I kind of, I'm like the type of person that when I'm first starting out watching Star Trek, any Star Trek series, I kind of like, it's true that like a lot of the first seasons aren't as good as subsequent seasons. So I will tend to put it on in the background maybe at first. And then once it starts hit, ca- catching me, I'll like have watching that season, that episode, sorry, watching that series as like the main event of what I'm doing in the moment. So I'm sure that for duet the first time around, I didn't have it on in the background. I focused on it, um, which is why I remember it. But um, I would say that during that first watch, because I only watched it for the first time last year and then rewatching it this week, it really holds up. It's still really good. Um, the episode is pretty serious, but I found it really engaging and the pacing went quickly. So it never, I was never bored. It didn't feel like there were any scenes that were unnecessary. Um, it just, I was saying this before we started recording. I don't know if I've kind of like come down on a side about this episode, about like what actually happens in it. Cause I find it frustrating but also but in like a good way that like makes me think like I don't have like a one-sided opinion about how everyone is acting or everyone in this episode I feel like there are I'm trying to think of like a better way to explain it I I feel like I just have a lot of mixed emotions about the situation going on in this episode. Understandably, it's an incredibly complicated one and it taps onto a lot of like real life issues. So it's a pretty loaded episode in that regard, for sure. And I think one of the strengths of it, like in contrast to some other Star Trek episodes that are morality plays in the same way is this episode doesn't wrap it up kind of neatly in a bow for you. This episode wants you to sit with it as like Kira is kind of our audience kind of analog almost in, in ways and it being a very Kira episode um, going through. So I think that's like definitely by design and it just it's definitely i think one of those touchstones for what the show becomes and and go grows into but i don't know if like i can think of another episode that we'll get to eventually that i think impacts me individually in like the same way as this episode it's much later i think it's a season six episode um but this is yeah it's an all-timer um and I guess we'll, like, as we kind of continue through the the initial thoughts sections, I've, like, clipped some quotes as I am wont to do from the, the cast and various kind of publications talking about it. And both Armin Shimmerman, who we've talked about before, who plays Quark, who, come to think of it, I don't think was actually in this episode. Um, and then the now visitor, who, of course, plays Kira, who was very much in this episode, have listed Duet as among their favorites. Um... 
Armin has a has a couple quotes. First one from the from the Deep Space Nine companion, where he refers to the writing and the directing and the acting in this episode all coalescing perfectly. And then in the fifty year mission, the next twenty five years, the second volume, which is the two volumes. These ones I actually are books I have. They're really good. They're oral histories of the first fifty years of Star Trek. They're definitely entertaining and engaging reads. And what. Armin Shimmerman says about this episode and the 50-year mission the next 25 years is, quote, it's a fascinating episode dealing with Bajor and nationalism and with Cardassian war crimes. I love these kinds of scripts because they deal with societal issues placed in the context of space. And we're not, like, spoiler alert for later in this podcast, just because of the nature of this episode, we won't be having the um, most Star Trek moment or, um, most importantly, the uh, Altair Water Thirst Quenching section, because the way this episode leaves us, I don't think any of us were really in the mood to um, talk about those kind of regular segments there. Um, but it's a very Star Trek thing to have these kind of morality plays within the context of science fiction and that's a lot of like star trek's dna but this episode doesn't moralize in at least to me in a lot of the same ways that like the original series would or next gen would or even like other episodes of of deep space nine and then some some quotes from from the Nah visitor who obviously was one of the two all-stars of this episode quote and this comes from, sorry, the Captain's Log Supplemental, the Unauthorized Guide to the New Trek Voyages. And this is Nana speaking. The action comes out of big issues on this show. There's action and intrigue, but the writing really lets us deal with issues we're not embarrassed to commit ourselves to as actors and people. On a sitcom, very often it's, should I let Johnny out stay after midnight or not? It's an important issue, but not quite as much as Holocaust victims and facing evil in one person and how you deal with it, which is one thing. I had to deal with it, which is one thing I had to deal with in duet. It was kind of harrowing to have to deal with that subject matter every day, but the harder it is, the more rewarding it is. Visitor further commented that duet is a wonderful episode and was of the opinion that in in this episode's making was a case where due to the limitations, the people involved in it, they needed to start being more creative. Again, kind of that, that bottle episode we were just talking about before. And then goes on to say, I think everyone had done that and amped up the creativity just a little bit. Mm. I think um, just to touch on what Armin was saying first of all I wanted to say I was looking up that book the 50 year mission and I might get that because I have the other book I have another book by the same authors about um James Bond (laughs) called nobody does it better which I'm starting to read this year which is an oral history of all the Bond movies um and I really agree with Armin. I love when Star Trek talks about social issues, especially when it comes to nationalism, because I mean, a lot of characters in Star Trek have pride for their species and their, their home worlds. Like that is a very common thing in Star Trek. And I do find that the Bajoran Cardassian episodes are always very interesting to me. We've spoke previously even with when Anya was on last, 
with um, battle lines, we've talked about Bajor and Cardassia and some of the real world um, comparisons that could be made. And obviously in this one, you know, Nana already had mentioned the Holocaust and we've talked also about the Israeli occupation of Palestine. And I just feel like I love when Trek is political and it always has been political and that's great. I do think that one of the reasons that DS9 is the series that, in my opinion, from that era that has aged the best is because it's willing to do episodes like this and really commit to it throughout its like extended lore, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. I feel like they were given the space to do that too in, in a way that like Next Gen wasn't. Right. Next Gen was a little bit more tied to what Gene Roddenberry wanted, right? Like he had more, I don't remember what when he died, but he had like a lot more control over that, right? Yeah, that's why this stuff, um, that's why DS9 is allowed to discuss religion more and it's allowed to have crew members that don't like each other. Right. Oh, that makes sense. Can you imagine, like, I can't even imagine any situation I've ever been in where, like, everyone liked each other. Like, that's <laughs> that just doesn't happen. It seems worse than at least you get to, like, dislike one person, you know, where you yeah. can focus all of your... I love disliking one person. <laughs> <laughs> well, is it, that's, like, the whole premise of, like, a Michael Schur, like, workplace comedy, right? Where, like, yeah. the office all gets along and they bond over bullying one person, right? Because, like, in the office yeah. it's Kevin and then it's Jerry and... Um, but I also feel like they do it to Dwight also, <laughs> mm. to be honest. <laughs> but, um... Scully and, and Hitchcock in yeah. Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Um, but anyways, this isn't a Michael Schur podcast. We're talking about duet. Um, I found it was interesting that the original pitch for this episode, and um, there's a, a story by credit. Um, normally just credit the, the teleplay, but the story by credit. The original pitch from this episode from Lisa Rich and, and Jean Kerrigan Fauci was a little bit more of a simple conflict. And based on the hearing of you have someone having to defend their, their worst enemy. Um, Kerrigan Fauci later explained, quote, the basic premise was what would happen if you had to defend your worst enemy? What would you do if you had to be responsible for his life? There's so much inherent conflict in that concept. And of course, it was only natural to use Kira and a Cardassian in that situation and to have them both learn something about each other. And that's from the, the Deep Space Nine companion. And then Michael Piller, who was the showrunner at this point, um, says later on, and it's a quote that we can find in the 50-year the mission again, um, volume two, the next 25 years. Duet was pitched to us by two of our interns who wanted to do something about a war criminal. In the context it was pitched, it didn't turn me on. The idea of a war criminal found aboard DS9 seemed to be an interesting concept, but at, but at first it seemed to, to me to be a judgment at Nuremberg court show. Since the first season of DS9 had already included a court episode, Dax, which... We listeners may recall uh, Annie also Annie also guessed it on that episode. Um, <laughs> the show's I writing see, staff. I'm starting. Sorry, I'm starting to see um, a common thread in the uh, episodes that Anya wants to guest on. <laughs> oh, whatever do you mean? <laughs> um, yeah, and since it was the first season, we've talked a little bit before about um, Iris 
quote of we were really ballsy to do a season three episode in season <laughs> one um they didn't want to have another courtroom drama episode so soon so that was when in in the kind of writing process it, it twisted a bit um and yeah i mentioned earlier about how this episode felt very much like a stage play and the plot of this episode was actually inspired by robert shaw's 1967 stage play the man in the glass booth which tells the story of a jewish man accused of being a nazi war criminal in fact leonard nimoy starred in a production of this play years later leonard nimoy of course who played famously played spock little little known role in star trek you might have heard of um <laughs> And the play, in turn, is based on actual events that took place after World War II, such as the Nuremberg Trials and the hunt of top-ranked Nazi officials who escaped Germany and made up new identities for themselves, um, such as, I mean, most famously, like, Adolf Eichmann. Um, and yeah, um, there's another pillar quote here, I'm leaning heavily on again, the, the 50-year mission, Volume 2 again, um, and Pillar says... Iris Stephen Bear gave us the twist that gave the man in the glass booth kind that gave the episode the man in the glass booth kind of feeling, where the guy who says he, where the guy isn't who he says he is, but is doing it for more noble reasons. And I guess again, this is going to be like a little bit of a like kind of different episode, and we kind of just kind of dive into the the themes and stuff like that now, because again, it is one of those rare episodes of Star Trek where they're is no clear delineation between an a plot or a b plot or anything else like that and i'd like to propose the question to you both and we'll start with you anya um regarding the twist in this episode and the assumed identities and things like this and doing it for noble reasons and, and martyrdom ultimately um do you think maritza was a martyr do you think he was being noble and i guess we'll start with you anya i mean i think that he couldn't you know, deal with what he had done, which may not have been on the same level as Dalheel, um, but he couldn't deal with, like, the complicitness that he had participated in. And so, in one way, he he does believe that he's going to be saving Cardassia by sort of trying to make them make amends to Bajor. But on the other hand, I do think that it's sort of like he cannot continue to go on. And this is the only way he can think of to sort of redeem himself is through some form of martyrdom. Elise, what do you think? Um, I don't think that anything that happened in this episode is noble. Um, I do think that he was trying to be a martyr, but I don't know if he was thinking like that big picture. Like I, I agree that he like, you know, he obviously wanted to be punished for what he was involved in, but I don't know how many... I feel like, and this is... To be a martyr, do, like, do people have to, like, know about it and, like, react to it? And I don't know the full, like, proper definition of that word, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. But I feel like it would have been more noble if instead of going about it this way he just like worked towards Im- um improving relations between the two planets and the two species or if he didn't want to deal with that anymore going somewhere and just helping people in general like i feel like that would have been more noble than like just 
I guess, trying to get killed or trying to die. Like, it, I don't see how this... I guess it would end his suffering is the only thing I could think of. But it's not helping people in general. Well, I think the idea he had was that it would force Cardassia to acknowledge what they had done and that they had participated in genocide, which Cardassia sort of refuses to admit now. So his big idea is supposedly that like he would be able to sort of make amends in that he would make Cardassia become honest. I don't know if that's what would actually happen. Um, I, I guess, yeah. No, I see what you're saying. I just, I guess I don't see that as what would actually happen. I feel like they would just try to cover it up somehow. Yeah, I do feel like the fascinating thing about Cardassians, and well, there's a lot, but one of them is that they seem to think that Cardassia has like nobility that it would put beyond self-preservation. Yeah, and I guess just to move back, like the Merriam-Webster's Dictionary has two definitions associated with martyr. Of course, they're they're related, but I think in this context, we're talking about the second definition, which is a person who sacrifices something of great value and especially life itself for the sake of principle. Um, the first definition being a person who voluntarily suffers death as the penalty of witnessing to and or refusing to renounce a religion. Um, so that's like the religious martyr versus kind of a more so secular really, definition of so it. So it doesn't really need to have like an audience to it, I guess is what, based on the definition. I mean, maybe not specifically like at like the execution, but it's like you're, you're dying for a cause or like something greater. Right. I didn't, um, and, sorry, I, I didn't mean like people are watching him get killed. Yeah. I meant like people would like hear about it and react to it. That's what I meant when I said audience. Right. Right. But like there has to be for like, I'm not think martyrdom in like the canonized like religious sense, but like to be a martyr, there almost I think has to be a purpose or an audience or like it, it's a way to find like because sentient beings i was gonna in the context of star trek or humanity in the context of our <laughs> world where we're both meaning seekers and meaning creators right so like there would have to be like an audience of some kind to take up that cause and i think that's what maritza is is hoping for but i do think that it is ways in which he is processing his own trauma from right. his own complicit actions and the episode is really forgiving of Maritza and Kira's like really forgiving which I think is interesting she makes the comment that um he was just one man he couldn't like do anything and now he's trying to like subscribe to great man theory and assuming the identity and has plastic surgery to look like Galdarheel yeah. um so yeah it's just like there's a certain, at least for me, or at least how I experience my own mental health stuff, um, we look for a nobility in our own suffering to find our own, like, in our own suffering, or I do sometimes. I won't make it might make my experiences global because they're definitely or universal because they're definitely not. Um, in order to find meaning or create meaning, and it's almost like Maritza has decided that this 
self-martyrdom and, and way forward and assuming this other identity and putting himself on on trial is the only way to make his complicity to make his own like traumas and like his PTSD like make sense and be worth something like it's almost very um what's the word I'm looking for <sighs> like it's almost very like first reformed or like taxi driver or like you know i never saw taxi driver but i did watch first reformed so i i understand so i think that my original thought of the definition of martyr being a martyr is was correct <laughs> go me um I am much less. I'll get into this more later, but I'm much less forgiving of Maritza than the episode is and Kira is, I think. I mean, he gets awards for his efficiency. And I think that the real noble thing, aside from like not participating at all or, you know, like working with our like Bajoran resistance group, would be to be really bad at his job. Like right. if you're gonna have to work in like self sabotage the, the like what you're doing. Yeah, like don't be good at it. Be very yeah. bad at it. Um, I I don't I don't mean for that to sound like flip or anything. No, um, I I didn't take it that way. But yeah, but, yeah, I understand what you're saying completely. Um. But yeah, I guess it kind of calls to mind in real life, um, like people who are in countries that like force military service and a lot of the time the only way around it is being arrested. And it's hard because like real life fiction, never a one-to-one, but I don't see Cardassia as a place that simply arrests you for refusing to participate. Yeah, I feel like he would have gotten murdered or something or tortured or... I don't think you get to tweet about taylor swift after right yeah like he would have been in the labor camp too i'm sure yeah um but eh, it's a it's a tough call and it's definitely not one that i feel like i can really pass judgment on um but i do think that like as someone who has made mistakes i very much understand just having a very skewed view of what you've done and thinking that some strange way to make amends is going to work rather than just further complicate things for everyone. I've never, like, needed plastic surgery to try to apologize to someone, though, so. (laughs) That seems like a really expensive apology. Well, and his whole plan, too, seems like it was kind of doomed to fail because it's really easy to verify that Maritza is dead and or not Maritza that Gardal Heel is is dead and that he wasn't at the labor camp when the mining accident happened that led to the the illness that Maritza has or that Calendar the survivors of the camp yes thank you um and like Gardal Heel Ducat says is buried under like the biggest like military monument like that Cardassia has so like it like Mertz's plan was kind of always like doomed to fail 
Um, but I do want to like work back a bit here. And in the episode summary, we mentioned I mentioned the the banality of evil. So if you two, if y'all will both like indulge me, I'd like to briefly dip our toes into um, Hannah Arendt discourse. Um, just because there has been a lot of discussions, we've already invoked Nuremberg a couple times on this 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 podcast and the quotes and and Adolf Eichmann specifically Adolf Eichmann for folks who might not be aware was one of the architects of the final solution which was ultimately the um holocaust and the genocide perpetuated by the Nazis during the during the second world war um Eichmann escaped Germany he ended up living in I think it was Argentina for a bit and then was part of a extrajudicial extradition captured and taken to Israel in the, in the early 60s and put on trial. Um, Hannah Arendt was a journalist slash political philosopher, um, wrote such books as The Origin of Totalitarianism and covered the Eichmann trial for I think it was the the New Yorker magazine and then wrote a book about it titled Eichmann in Jerusalem which was subtitled The Banality of Evil. In her book Eichmann in Jerusalem Arendt's thesis about Eichmann is a concept an expression of what she dubs the banality of evil a concept that she introduces in the book and her thesis is that Eichmann was not a fanatic or a sociopath but Instead, an extremely average and sort of mundane person who during his trial relied on cliche defenses um, and talking points rather than thinking for himself. And he was only looking to kind of like get ahead in life, was motivated by personal promotion as opposed to specific ideology and believed in success and trying to, you know, create what he considered to be the chief standard of a good society. Um, and the banality we're talking about here, the banality of evil, banality in the sense that did not mean that Eichmann's actions were in any way ordinary or that even there is a potential Eichmann in all of us, but that Eichmann's actions were motivated by complacency and kind of just this, I'm just doing life and this is how I do my job. Um, which in itself isn't wholly unexceptional. And like, as we talk about just being a filing clerk at a, at a what it's amounts to a concentration camp, um, that concept is definitely, I think, one that this episode is playing with. And Arendt's thesis on the banality of evil, banality of evil, excuse me, was one that many mid 20th century pundits, I think the book was published in, 1963 were favorable to this concept um i do want to call out too that there were you know many valid criticisms of arendt's thesis specifically as it relates to um her reflection on the victims of the holocaust and what some would label as potentially being victim blaming and also you know a a what other critics feel like is a, a massive misreading of, you know, Eichmann's own, you know, anti-Semitism and his own actual ideological, ideological leanings, um, in what he was doing. And there's some discussion and debate whether Arendt attended the trial enough to, um, 
speak with the same authority that that she did but the banality of evil is a, is a concept you'll see a lot in, in political philosophy and you know social histories and things like that and i think it's definitely something that this episode is playing with so i did want to want to mention it and some some criticisms of it on the podcast yeah that makes sense um i completely understand this concept and while parts of it might be true um especially with regard to i guess this maritza guy if he was just a file clerk and really didn't want to you know i don't think his i would say from the information we're given his crime is not as big as adolf eichmann's (laughs) um but I do find that analyzing Eichmann and other war criminals in this way doesn't obviously doesn't change what they actually did, which you had mentioned earlier. You know, it's not saying that their actions were banal, just the fact their attitudes towards it more. So um, I do think that looking at this type of situation in this way can help understand how these things happen. But it doesn't change for me like how angry I am at the original crime, whether it be the what happens in the show or obviously the Holocaust. Um, it also kind of makes me think of the last four years. And while things are pretty shitty in our country still, I more mean like Trump's cult of personality, like riling people up, um, racism and xenophobia becoming not more commonplace because we, as we know, they've always been there, but more acceptable to admit in public. And I'm not saying that the analysis, that this kind of analysis means we shouldn't criticize the behavior, but it does make me feel like when we do come at it from this perspective, I almost wonder like, what's the point? Like, are you trying are they trying is analyzing in this way supposed to like make me less angry like I don't think that that's the purpose but it kind of it sometimes for me analyzing why someone does something doesn't matter if they still did something really shitty so I just want to say that I do have a hard time with when it comes to nuance for like the holocaust like it just is something that i really have a hard time with because like the shitty actions happened um and whether it's because someone was horrible and really thought that you know jews were bad and other people that were murdered you know obviously jews were not the only people killed in the holocaust were bad and that they need to kill them versus someone who was just following orders like it doesn't matter to me I guess is what I'm trying to say the it's the reasoning doesn't matter but I think for me that might just be because that hits close to home for me so I don't know if I would feel that way for everything for every situation that would get analyzed in this way yeah of course um I mean, the Holocaust is an incredibly traumatic event, um, even for like descendants of people who would have been affected by it. And it's stomach-turning to even think about. Um, I have a hard time with the banality of evil because I think even if he was just sort of chasing success, um, it still means that fundamentally he had to have bought into sort of 
the ideas that he he had to have bought into some of the ideology to have continued to pursue genocide and like architect it um i don't think that i don't know i think it does it gets more complicated than i i just think that there are ideological reasons that he would need to be held accountable and I'm sorry, I'm not going to be very cohesive on the, or coherent on this. No, I, I kind of um, get what you're saying, though. Like, there had to have been some something that attracted him to this ideology, even if it was... Are we talking about I, Maritza or Eichmann? Eichmann. Everybody. Okay. I, I'm, I was talking about Eichmann more. Yeah. <laughs> um, like, there has to have been some reason. Like, I just feel like, I don't know. It, it seems like it's almost giving him, like, a pass or trying to give him a pass. I think it more just speaks to, like, he wasn't, sorry, I'm trying to, he more was, I, uh, I don't want to say ambitious, but, like, selfishly individualistic and ambitious is basically what I'm getting from it, and I think that there still needs to be something like extraordinarily callous to sort of follow ambition at the expense of millions of people. Um, right. I, I haven't read enough on Hannah Arendt's um, The Banality of Evil. I've, I studied it a little bit in college, but that's a bit away now. And so I don't feel like I'm 100% coherent or... Um, necessarily that I would even have the same thoughts now that I did when I read up on it a few years back. That's fair. Um, I've actually not studied it at all. So, I mean, I've heard of it, but like, I, so these are all, all of my thoughts on this are kind of what I'm thinking in the moment. Like I haven't done research. (laughs) So yeah, it's, it's hard to discuss such big topics sort of off the cuff. Um, Yeah. Matt always pulls this out. I'm glad that I have more, um, <laughs> for, more of a heads up this time now. Um, in the Dex, Dax episode later on, I was like, wait, no, it's about the fact that the person who was commit, like, accusing is still alive in those cases. And then I was like, wait, no, this is not recording now. So, <laughs> <laughs> But um, yeah, it's a huge topic that I don't necessarily know how to approach. Well, and it's like interesting too. Like, and I, I, it's been a minute since I've, I've rewatched it, and I think I probably need to, again soon, just because as we've been talking about it and, and thinking through and working these things. But have either of you seen um, Munich, the Steven Spielberg movie, with Eric Bana and a myriad of other folks? I actually haven't watched that. I, it's on my list. I have not either. I'm very sorry. No, I also it's, have it's, it's... complicated feelings about watching it because um, I know someone that was supposed to be there, like, and wasn't. At, at, at the Olympics? Yes. Um, yeah. So, and, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Like, he was on the wrestling team. 
so the only reason that I I invoke Munich and Munich um for folks who aren't aren't familiar is about um the aftermath of um the attack and, and the murder of a of the Israeli athletes at the the Munich Olympics in in the 70s and basically it's about a Mossad um hit squad who gets retaliation for for that those um those killings and those those attacks and it's it's very much like in um in the period of like spielberg's filmography um there's this really interesting period in which spielberg this like the nostalgia king um deals with his feelings on american exceptionalism post 9-11 and what a just response to um 9-11 is in contrast of the what we now know as the forever wars that you know we're, we're hopefully not stuck with forever but are probably are um you know just in terms of the u.s response and things like that and Eric Banner's character is is the lead. He's the head of the the Mossad, the Mossad um, hit squad going around doing extrajudicial assassinations, and he questions the morality of of the response and like what what he's been and he his team have been assigned to do, and he asks his handler at one point that we should be arresting these people and putting them on trial, and like he invokes Eichmann specifically being the most high profile um nazis that escaped the the nuremberg trials and what's interesting about that is eichmann was extrajudicial he was put on trial not you know in the international criminal court it wasn't a you know un thing again you know it wasn't a crimes against humanity thing it was put on trial by israel where eichmann didn't commit crimes didn't and just it's just it's really complicated. I don't want to go further down this rabbit hole, but the idea of what a just response to those atrocities is, I think, rings through thematically with this episode, especially with how it ends. Mm. God, the ending of this episode. God, yeah. the everything about this episode. <laughs> I'm used to like being like, yeah, Galdicott's burn book. And here I am just like, yeah, the banality of evil is a really complicated topic. Um, I'm sorry. Um, I thought, oh, um, but on to just to connect these, I do believe that do. Dax has a com- uh, comment about vengeance and how when Kira is conducting her investigation, she's sort of talking about like how she's like, I don't want this to be the right, the wrong guy, but I don't know how I'm going to feel about it. If it's like the right guy and all this stuff. And Dax says that vengeance or, you know, that vengeance isn't enough and that, you know, like an eye for an eye is not going to satisfy Kira and that she needs it to be sort of just. And that like Kira believes in justice more than vengeance. Um, and what that would mean to her, I think varies in some episodes, if that makes sense. But in this episode, it's very much that she's sympathetic to Maritza in that he knows what he's done is wrong. And that he was complicit. 
and so she isn't spoiler alert he's killed at the end of the episode um and so she's upset about that because she feels that you know for goodness sake like one of the only times i meet a cardaskin who some seems to believe in some form of justice he's murdered like we needed more people like him um and that that's my attempt to tie these together well and but it's the added like layer of that too where like the the cellmate um who was overnighting in in the brink because of public intoxication um thinks he is acting feels like he is acting justly when he kills maritza because he was a cardassian and then that's enough and that's kind of like kira's whole arc of this episode where it's like there is a bit of the episode wants us to feel like there is nuance that like kira is is learning there and like you know kind of some some complexity and like you say the difference between justice and vengeance but the person who knifes literally knifes maritza in the back thinks he is acting justly and that thinks that that is a just response to Uh, yeah yeah he even requests to not be in the same like holding area as maritza um I don't want to like fill in backstory that we aren't given, but I'd assume that he's possibly having substance abuse issues out of trauma that is caused yeah. by the Cardassians. Yeah. Like, and so, yeah, it's messy. Um, yeah, they, at one point, I can't remember if it's Dukat or Maritza is saying that like, Kira is acting out of her um, just blind persecution of Cardassians. Like, and I, I just disagree that that's who Kira is, but I do think that to some extent it's also who we see Kira become is like the person who is able to engage in more nuance. Yeah, I definitely um, felt like upset by the end that you know marissa just was like murdered and we didn't get to see really how they were gonna handle him um but it was something like it was i thought it was a really big deal to see kira say that marissa being a cardassian was not enough to kill him like i it was just you can see how hard it was for her to come to that conclusion. And I'm not saying that, like, Kira would go around murdering all Cardassians, but, like, for all the pain that they've caused her, it just was a really powerful moment to see whether I agree with her on Marissa or not. It was just interesting to see her kind of come around to that nuance. For sure. Um... God, Kira's arc is so good. I love Kira and Maurice. <laughs> I found it earlier in the episode when um, when Maritza was like kind of boasting about all the crimes that they... <laughs> I don't know. First he was like trying to pretend like they didn't do all of those crimes at Galatep. Um, I couldn't, I don't know if gaslighting is the right word to use because I feel like that word is often used incorrectly in the last few years, especially like 
by myself included. But when he's telling her that none of the crimes at Galatep actually happened and that they just made them up to sound scary and to, like, put fear in people, I just, like, wanted to scream at this man so much. I was very much like, fuck you, you're purposely goading her and trying to confuse her and her recollection of what happened. And that's why it felt, like, gaslighting to me a little bit because he was, like, she knew what what happened and he was trying to tell her like that's not what happened um it just was so infuriating to me i know he was doing everything on he was doing it on purpose i know that and i just hated it and i don't mean like i hated the episode i just like in that i was so angry and i you know i think the episode was trying to make you angry in that moment but um it it really worked on me for sure. And I think there's a few layers. One is that Kira wasn't necessarily held in this labor camp. She liberated it. No, I, I understand so, that. No, 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 yeah. no, I'm not trying yeah. to I'm not trying to Kardashian explain anything to you. <laughs> um, uh, but I think that he is sort of trying to like fuck with the fact that she necessarily hadn't seen things firsthand in that like right. she hadn't experienced them. She had helped liberate it and so he yeah he's very much trying to gaslight her um and the other thing too is it's so weird to look back on this and be like did he have a whole arc planned out for himself like he comes in like knowing he has to get captured and he's like okay first i'm gonna deny everything and then i'm gonna flip it like what he's and then he's just like hands it up as much as possible it's just such a, a true just true nonsense um it like it makes me think about how all of the um the holocaust survivors are dying off and then soon there's not going to be anyone who witnessed what happened and Mm. i just feel like people are i mean people already are people have for years been denying that it happened and i just feel like that's probably why i got so angry watching that scene because it reminded me that Soon there's not going to be anyone that had witnessed the Holocaust, and it's only going to become easier and easier for people to deny it. Yeah, it's it's awful. I wonder how it is documented in universe. Not to not to sort of bring levity or anything to it, but. I don't know if we ever really see it explored in the ways that, like, are there any, like, memorial museums or, like, right. is there footage that was taken? Right, right. Joint? Yeah. It's... Because I feel like it's, it's the future. The technology is there. <laughs> you know? Like, I don't... Obviously, the technology was, like, not there <laughs> for World War Two, But, like... In, in Star Trek, you know, they have the means. But I also feel like Cardassia would, like, try to dissuade, it, or, you know, anyone from recording anything. I just feel like if they found out someone was, like, taking notes on what happened, they would just kill them, probably. Yeah. Maritza's guilt, um, and then wanting to be a martyr to bring about some kind of like reckoning or or reconciliation or whatever 
Um, it really like struck a chord with me too. Um, not necessarily because of the, the Holocaust allegories in the episode, which are definitely there. We've talked about them, um, or are talking about them, but it just really struck me as kind of like parallels to the white settler response from a lot of like Canadians to um, Canada's history of genocide with indigenous popul with indigenous nations and indigenous folks. Um, and you're seeing a lot in, in the news right now, not to date this episode, not that it's actually news, but, uh, and that it's not new, <laughs> I should say, it is news, <laughs> but, um, about residential schools and the atrocities that were committed there and the unmarked graves of, of children and things like that. And, and it, it's, and just like there, there's like, when you're just doing a job or you're just like living your life on stolen land, um, being, being forced to participate in a capitalist society, um, it's like, oh, I can't believe I'm, like, culpable in this. By, like, my lifestyle, like, has contributed to and is based on settler capitalism or settler colonialism. And it's like, I need to do this big thing. I need to go to this big protest to make me feel better about myself. Which ultimately, effectively, is just about yourself as the individual and you're still perpetuating that harm. Right? That's not... that's not addressing any of the actual issues. That's a way that you can feel better and like let yourself off the hook, which I don't think is totally what's going on with Maritza. I think there are traumas that go deeper than that, but it's just, it's almost like there's an aspect of, I guess what I'm trying to say is there's an aspect of like white savoring, like reconciliation right like if right. i die it'll make this better because i'm yeah like, no i i like, understand you know what, what you're I mean? saying mm -hmm. um, totally and the sort of like the willful desire to see that like your people would do the right thing rather than you know that the, those in power would continue to sort of ignore what had been done that's kind of why was, i was like didn't really want to call him a martyr earlier because i felt like nothing would have happened from it I don't know. I, that was his goal. I don't know if it's what the result would be. Right. Yeah. There, none of us could know that. Well, and like you think about like some of the responses to um, imperialism in Vietnam and the American War in Vietnam, like with like other monks or Quakers or both if i'm if i'm remembering her accurately at, at various times like these are like self-immolation to make that kind of ultimate sacrifice in that political statement um yeah it's uh it's a really well written well directed well acted episode i don't know if i i co-sign all of its themes but like I don't know if I necessarily, full disclosure, like, don't either. Like, I think you could probably maybe not have a whole, like, university seminar course on this episode, <laughs> but you could have, like, a whole unit or a couple of weeks kind of. A you can have a little lecture. 
<laughs> like a little lecture series. <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally. What is a podcast if not a lecture series persistent? Uh, oh, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, this would fit so well in like the cultural memory course I took, which is about sort of like re-eval- how we reevaluate the atrocities we've committed. And, oh, that like, sounds really interesting. Them. Yeah, the Forrest Gump section was a nightmare. <laughs> but <laughs> I can only imagine. Forrest Gump if Robert being... Zermikis could meet me in the parking lot, that'd be great. <laughs> Forrest, Forrest okay, Gump being don't... the zenith of the American <laughs> Empire, and it was all downhill just, after that. Just, that, just that's, don't take... that's Forrest Gump's legacy. Sorry, Elise, go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say, just don't take the um, Bats of the Future trilogy away from me, and we're fine. Oh, no, I stand Roger Rabbit, like, till my Oh, mind. yeah, Roger Rabbit's, like, my fave. If we could deal with some of the consent issues in Back to the Future, though, um, that would be good, too. Um, That's fair. Kristen Glover, like, not having say in his scenes. Yeah, so let's, if we're going to rewrite the back, no, we're not going to go down this. (laughs) Um, But yeah, we can deal with the the lack of enthusiastic consent, and if we can, like, not screw Crispin Glover over for the second one, that'd be great. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I have like a whole video essay on death becomes her in me. I just need to like flesh it out. <laughs> uh, I just think of all of the essays that we have that we will never write. Not that you're not going to write that, but like I just feel like I have so many like things like that where I have so many ideas, and I'm just like I'm never going to explore this. I have a really good one on a uh, DS9 character that hasn't come up yet, who I think. Oh is very maligned by the fandom and you have to tell me when we get are you talking or is it zia it's zia oh she's great um i like her too but i also feel like when we're done recording that i need like your like thesis on that (laughs) oh absolutely yeah um, this um, episode also sort of has like a couple of sister episodes in season six that I think will be interesting to sort of like listen to this again and then like look into those. I touched on this earlier and I about like I do feel sad that Marissa gets killed, but in general, I just don't feel sorry for him, um, which kind of goes back to the discussion that we had on the banality of evil, like. Yes, he was a file clerk, and he probably didn't actually... Like, I I get the impression that maybe he just, like, didn't actually kill anyone himself, I guess. I don't know. Obviously, there's a lot of information we don't have, but he supposedly, like, cowered in the corner when he heard the screams every night. But I still feel like... If he refused to be a file clerk, he probably would have been put in the labor camp or killed or whatever so i don't know while i don't feel sorry for him and i that he was part of this at the same time i don't know what other options he would have had in the moment you okay there so yeah i have Basically, my TLDR on this episode is I really love it, but it fucked me up. (laughs) And I have mixed emotions on all of it. Yeah. Um, If we needed a moment of levity, there's one moment where Odo 
either steals or asks. I, it, he had to have asked. He could have taken it. He could have like illegally seized or like legally seized uh, Quark's reserves and give some to Kira to like have her relax. And I think that that's why this is the best like polycule in all of Star Trek. <laughs> After watching um, Dramatis Personae last week, and there's a scene where Kira tells to get lost and it's like the hottest thing I've ever seen I'm hysterical about this <laughs> just like them being part of the same uh, polycule is ridiculous and wonderful <laughs> <laughs> yeah I oh one there was another funny another funny thing in the episode this is was in your notes, but like the the computer enhance. Yeah, they literally say computer enhance. If if I was we like, had done most Star Trek moments, it would be that. I was like, is this CSI Deep DS Nine or whatever? So not only did they enhance the photo, but they like turned it to the side, like right? They like moved it so you can see. Um, yeah. Gold Dark Heel's face. Like I didn't. I didn't know uh, it worked that way. It's Jadzia, so <laughs> I guess she could do. <laughs> it reminds me. It reminded me of Bones, um, the TV show Bones. There's like um, the character Angela has like all this like tech stuff, and there's literally one machine. They just call it like the Angelatron because like I don't know what it's really called, but they just call it that. And she like enhances and she'll like see someone's bones and then like make up what their face looks like, and it's always right. <laughs> But, like, it's, like, a computer graphics, like, a 3D image thing. Anyway. <laughs> kind of reminded me of that. Yes. <laughs> um, so, any other thoughts? Or, sorry. Yeah, sorry. I was just going to say, so, Elise, you said TLDR that you love this episode. It fucks you up. You have mixed emotions on it. And I guess just being being respectful of the time, because we have been going for, for an hour. Um... Anya, same thing. What do you have any kind of, you know, closing thoughts? Where where did you land on on duet? Was there anything else you wanted to wanted to cover today that we haven't already touched on? Um, well we covered so much and we covered like the deeper topics. I think duet's also interesting in that it goes over sort of like the rights of the accused. And yeah. it's hard to like actually defend the rights of the accused because like it it feels wrong when you live in sort of like a hyper military militaristic system but like in the end of the day they're what like protects everyone um and so it was it was really rough to have like gul dukat be like uh the rights of the accused because it's like well yeah i agree with you but also ew it's you like gross um so yeah um uh, so that's like one thing about the episode that sort of like really ratchets in the cognitive dissonance. Um, but it's it's one of my favorites. Um, it has some overlap with some of my favorite '90s movies, and it's just in general like beautifully done. So wait, which movies? I love it. Um, the way that the interrogation scenes are shot are very similar to Signs of the Lambs. 
which I know is a problematic fave, but is one of my faves nonetheless. No, I love that movie, but I haven't seen it in a long time, so I don't remember. But that was a movie I I always liked. Yeah, I had a little joke in my notes that was like Silence of the um, Lopas, which is an animal native to Bajor. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. (laughs) Yeah. So I, I love it. I, I am fighting every like one of my body that wants to get into Silence of the Lambs discourse, but instead of doing <laughs> that, I will refer to a couple years back the Blank Check podcast, who definitely doesn't don't need a shout out from us there. They're doing just fine. Um, on the Jonathan Demi series, they of course covered Silence of the Lambs, and Emily Vanderwolf uh, is their their guest on that episode, and there's and Emily if if you aren't familiar is a is a film film and tv critic who's also a trans woman so if you want to dig more into silence of the lambs good movie problematic and hear kind of emily's thoughts on that episode specifically as a singular trans person who enjoys that movie um definitely go check out the blank check podcast because you'll you'll be better served in silence of the lambs discourse than than me getting into it now second or, or third hand as a cis person um but yeah um, i believe you're good is another podcast that does some signs of the lambs discourse with a um trans guest who and that was really well done as well um really great in general you can find great trans voices on signs of the lambs if you mm. just yeah, take a diversify look. your podcast um, speaking of emily I feel like we need to start a campaign to get her to come on our podcast. Because yeah, she's been she rewatching definitely, these. Do you say to yeah, I know she, and she did tweet out there saying that she would love to go on a podcast to speak about Deep Space Nine. So I feel like we need to like figure this out. Yes, <laughs> let's just do it. I just one. know it's going to be start like an hour of me just listening to her talk. Step two. <laughs> Become a famous podcaster. Step three, book Emily Vanderwolf. Um, yeah. <laughs> That'll be like hashtag goals. <laughs> oh, yeah. But yeah. Matt, did you have any last thoughts? I mean, I think we, I'd just be kind of summing up and like repeating what I've said before. But yeah, it's. I think one of the best episodes of Star Trek period, it's one that I definitely have to sit with and think about. And like, I think on different days I'm going to land in a different place with this episode. And like, I think that's, that's what I like about media, TV, novels, art in general, right? Is that the art stays the same and our responses to it can change. And that's, I think, not to get too galaxy brain, but that's what it's all about, man. Um, it's kind of beautiful. That might be the galaxy brain. <laughs> <laughs> I love DS9. <laughs> Me too. Well, Anya, thanks so much for joining us. This has been yes. this has been great. Yeah, I'm gonna have to come back for something light, like profit and loss, <laughs> like the Casablanca <laughs> episode. Let's go. <laughs> as long as it's not profit and lace, because we'll maybe we can. Yeah, no, well, yeah. Um, <laughs> t- 
talking about I'm trans like discourse. completely oh. dreading that episode. <laughs> I skipped it on my last rewatch. I'm not looking forward to it. I don't mean it, like hey. I'm dreading watching it. I'm dreading discussing it. I'm dreading both. Um, but yeah. hey, that's not till season six, and we're just wrapping out season one. So yeah. <laughs> we got some time. We got some I'm gonna time. I'm going to have to come back for a waltz if that's okay. <laughs> I can't remember. Waltz we have a list somewhere of who's called out what, so we'll have to look that up. I think the first, I think Waltz is the furthest ahead someone's called Shotgun on. I think yeah, someone's someone called, that someone one called I think it was the Dias cast, which is, I think, a season three episode, but. It's that and uh, wrongs darker than night and day or gosh. Yeah, the Brian Fuller episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 (laughs) It's kind of almost a Hannibal episode in some ways. Um, anyways, not quite as eighties art house film, but you know, we'll we'll see. Actually, yeah. We've brought it all back around. Silence of the Lambs. There we go. All right. Well, Anya, if folks wanted to get more of your your great thoughts on the internet, where could they find you? Um, I'm Anya Eek with Oh Golly G. Every time, every time, I'm like, oh no. Is it six E's? It's not six. It's either four or five. Ah, I. I think it is two. Not me forgetting how to spell my own name. Um, it is five. There we go. Five E's on um Instagram. And Anya eight nine three on Twitter. Awesome, Elise. Where can folks find more of you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter and Letterbox at Elise underscore Tendi E L Y S E T E N D I. And you, Matt? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter and Letterbox as well at at Mattyhugh M A T T Y H U G H. You can actually. Also catch me talking about Mad Men on my Mad Men podcast, Still Great Bob. And that's on Twitter and Instagram at, at @stillgreatpod. Yay. You can find our show on Twitter and Instagram at podwraiths, P-O-D-W-R-A-I-T-H-S. You can also email us. <laughs> did I spell that correctly? Yes, um, you can you also did. email us at podwraiths at gmail.com. And please rate and review the podcast on the podcasting system of your choice. That helps us get listeners, and we'll also read them on air as long as they're nice. <laughs> I might just be polite. Read That's all we a ask. Really not nice one. Just so we just can be polite. Laugh at them. <laughs> I'll leave a I'll leave a really mean one. <laughs> and as always, I thank only... you to. De- oh, sorry. Go ahead. I only want a mean one if it's genuine. Please don't send a fake mean one. <laughs> Fair enough. As always, thank you to DJ Empirical for our interstellar theme song. And until next time, computer and program. Bye. Bye.